This is J.G. Hertz, the General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we're joined by a very special guest, James Kahn, who is the writer and producer of uh, Season 7 of of Star Trek Voyager, as well as the uh, writer of the Masterpiece Society from Star Trek The Next Generation. How's it going, James? It's going well. How are you? Oh, we're doing really well. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Sure. You know, look, looking at your career, it's crazy because, I mean, you've, you've written so much stuff and, and it's not, none of it is at all similar to to each other in, in any way whatsoever, <laughs> which is great. Um, but just for, for fans who, who um, may not be familiar, uh, you were uh, on staff on, on uh, season seven of Voyager, correct? That's correct. I was a supervising producer and writer. And, and you... Uh, wrote four episodes, including Critical Care, uh, Lineage, The Void, and Natural Law, right? Right. And before that, you had written um, an episode of Next Generation, The Masterpiece Society. But in addition to that, you've also uh, written original novels, movie novelizations, other TV shows, including Melrose Place and All My Children. And uh, now you've got a a new movie which you're working on uh, called Wrong Side Bob. Before all that, you were a doctor. Right, right. Um, although I was, I was, I think I, I was always a, uh, a writer first. I, I began writing when I was about eight years old. And I used to read, uh, you know, fantastic stories and amazing stories and tales from the crypt comic books. Um, but then I would have ideas about how to end them differently or different plot twists I wanted to see in them. So I would write them all out longhand in my little spiral binders, and I would just change what the the plots from the comic books into whatever whatever I wanted to see, and that was kind of the beginning of my storytelling, I think. So medical school was kind of a sideline. <laughs> <laughs> and and you went to University of Chicago. You, you you grew up in Chicago, right? Right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm from Chicago too. So. Oh, are you from where? Um, I, I'm I'm in Forest Park. I, I grew up in Oak Park, but. Um, yeah, looking at your uh-huh. Wikipedia page, you were, you were up north by, like, Displains in that area, right? Well, I started, actually, my, uh, my parents brought me up in Hyde Park on the south side uh, for my early childhood. And then we moved to Displains when I was seven or something like that. And then I went back to Hyde Park for the uh, University of Chicago, both college and medical school. So, so you went to the University of Chicago for, for medical school, and um, that... That seemed to be going pretty well. How is it that you sort of shifted gears and, and went into writing instead of uh, medicine, medicine as a career later on? Well, well yeah, actually, when I was uh, in the University of Chicago in college, I entered a short story contest. And and uh, it did not win. It took second place, I think. But one of the judges... Um, was friends with some of the editorial staff at Playboy magazine. And so unbeknownst to me, they sent my short story into Playboy. And the first I knew about it was I got a check from Playboy magazine to publish my story. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I thought, wow, maybe this means I can be a professional writer. So I spent, I spent uh, 
the next several years sending off all my short stories to various magazines, which got uh, rejected almost almost uniformly. <laughs> and in the meantime, I, I still had to find a way to make a living, and and uh, uh, you know I enjoyed enjoyed biology, and I, I loved the medical sciences, so I went to medical school as kind of a day job. And then and then what what was it that that finally uh, got you to break through into writing professionally? Well, while I was uh, um, in medical school, uh, I was, uh, especially towards the end, I was starting to write again and starting to write more long forms. And then when I graduated medical school, I actually took a year off before my internship. And during that year, I wrote my first novel uh, and got married as well. So that when I started my residency in emergency medicine in uh, at L.A. County, I was sending that novel out uh, to various agents and, and one one uh, took took it and it got it got sold. So I sold my first novel while I was doing my residency in emergency medicine, actually, and that was a uh, a murder mystery called Diagnosis Murder. Oh, that's cool. um, awesome! The success of that uh, encouraged me so that basically for the next several years during my residency and and early working in emergency rooms around L.A. Uh, I, I kept writing novels, and I, I proceeded to write a, a trilogy of science fiction novels, World Enough in Time, uh, followed by Time's Dark Laughter, followed by Timefall. And those I wrote all during the residency and then in the, the, the years following the residency. Wow. How, how on earth, I, just a, as a question, like I, I know uh, from relatives who have gone into the medical field, I mean, that, that's an amazing demand on your time. And to to have the focus <laughs> able to do that, that's just an amazing thing. Yeah, I always had uh, a good sense of discipline. But but frankly, I mean, uh, I went into emergency medicine for a couple reasons. And one was um, it felt like the modern day equivalent of sorcery. It was very, it was exciting and commando. And you were actually pulling people out of the jaws of death and bringing people back to life. And it felt like a very wizard-like uh, profession, which was very exciting to me, but the other the other element of emergency medicine uh, that was appealing was, unlike other kinds of medicine where you're on call for patients you have all the time and you're called in the middle of the night and you have to go into the hospital. If you're working in emergency rooms, you can basically schedule your, yourself on for whenever you want to be on, and you're working hard while you're on. And then when you schedule yourself off, you're not on call. You're just your time is your own. So I could schedule myself on for, you know, four long shifts in a week and then take a week off during which I could write or, or do whatever. It was a, a very uh, a good kind of medical specialty if you wanted to be a writer. Cool. I guess that makes sense, yeah. And, of course, it was an, an endless – you could endlessly gather material in the emergency room as well, of course. So. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so those those three novels that you wrote, um, the 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 New World series, is, that's what it's called, right? Um, yeah. Right. Wh- right. What what are those about? It was actually kind of a, a pre Jurassic Park idea. It was set in a, a dystopic society, a hundred or two hundred years in the future of ours, in a society which seems like a fantasy world at first. It's it's people are running around in a in an agrarian kind of. Uh, primitive society, but they're also surrounded by lots of uh, mythological creatures of various kinds from various mythologies. There are, you know, unicorns and and minotaurs and centaurs and and various kinds of strange things. And we come 
we come to learn that uh, it's actually a very real and science fiction world in which in our time or in our near future, these creatures were genetically engineered um, for, for theme parks, for zoos, for workforces, and genetic engineers would take the splice the genes of a, of a bull and a human to make a minotaur uh, and turn it loose in a theme park, in a Greek mythology theme park. And then after uh, an apocalypse uh, of, of various causes, uh, most of the human race was wiped out. And all that was left was uh, uh, a small number of humans surrounded by basically all the creatures that they had created, that they thought were the creatures of their dreams that had now turned into the, into the creatures of their nightmares. And we're trying to largely kill them because they blame them for the catastrophes of the world. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it seems like genetic engineering is something which uh, runs through a lot of your work. There's a couple of episodes of Star Trek which you wrote which um, ha- have to do with that and stuff like that. Is that like a, a subject which fascinates you just in general? Was that something that you studied or, or something? It is. It, you know, it, I didn't study it, but it did fascinate me. And... and uh, and especially during my early years of science fiction writing, I brought to bear a lot of the scientific uh, things that I had learned in medical school. And genetic engineering always seemed like a, a fascinating kind of idea to develop. And, and uh, as I say, long before Jurassic Park ever ever developed the idea of recreating dinosaurs uh, from their DNA, I had developed this idea of, of you know the ability to take DNA from various species and meld it into whatever you wanted to. And then the ramifications of that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> where when were you able to sort of make the transition from from medicine to uh, you know writing? When when did the uh, the ability to support yourself uh, off of your writing uh, occur? Right. Well, um, after I finished my residency, in addition to writing these social, uh, these scientific sci-fi novels. I wrote a, a script, a feature film script, uh, kind of pre-ER, based on my experiences in the emergency room. Uh, and it didn't get made into a movie or a TV show, but it, it was it got me a lot of meetings uh, with TV shows because they liked, they liked the writing and they liked what I was able to do with it. And that got me a job on uh, an, a sitcom called ER. It wasn't the ER that we're all familiar with, with... Uh, uh, the drama with George Clooney. It was a sitcom with Elliot Gould as a, as an ER doctor. And so that was my first television job. I got a, a junior level staff job writing for that. Although I will say that I introduced uh, a character in that named Ace the Orderly, uh, who was played by, uh, I think, an 18-year-old George Clooney at the time. So I actually wrote his first role in ER. <laughs> I was just going to say, you, yeah. you always hear people reference that, you know, like, George Clooney was on another ER first, and wow, you're the guy who wrote that. That's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, not only wrote it, I created George Clooney's character. I was always, uh, I never, I've actually <laughs> never met George Clooney since then. Except on that show, and we we had some nice conversations. But I always wanted to talk to him again and remind him of that. <laughs> so that got me a a life in television, and that led uh, kind of from job to job. I got a, I got a one off show on Saint Elsewhere. I wrote, uh, which was a, a kind of cool one hour dramatic um, medical hospital TV show at the time. Um, and then as as 
kind of happens in the television world. You just you slowly advance. Television is a writer-driven medium as opposed to movies, which are more director-driven. Um, but in television, the writers are the ones who really kind of run the show and develop the power. And as you you rise in the the ladder of being a writer in television shows, you gradually become uh, introduced to to production as well. That show took me to a, a show called uh, Family Medical Center, which was a um, kind of a it was a half hour what was called a strip show, which means it was shown as a, a five day a week strip, and meant to be it was syndicated and shown in in various markets either at 11:30 at night opposite the Johnny Carson show, or in some markets uh, during the day against soap operas. Hmm. And that was uh, I actually wrote 167 shows for that, and it was kind of a faux. Uh, docudrama. It was the the premise was there was a, a handheld camera crew at a doctor's office, a doc, an office, a clinic of three doctors, kind of following the doctors around on their daily rounds with their patients. Oh, wow. So I wrote That's... 167 shows that year. It almost, almost wiped me out. Um, <laughs> and uh, but that was really the beginning of my kind of ongoing television career. And you know we'll get we'll get to Star Trek in a second here, um, which I'm sure is kind of an extension of that. But before we do, you've kind of wrote the novelizations for America's Childhood in a sense. Yeah. You wrote some really <laughs> big novelizations back in the '80s. How, how how did that get started? Yeah, yeah, um, that was a funny story. I was actually working an emergency room in uh, in Santa Monica. Um, during those days. That was the early 80s. And this woman whose name I'd never heard before, named Kathleen Kennedy, called uh, the emergency room and said, was there anyone down there who could help her figure out how to resuscitate an alien? So so uh, uh, a number of us said, sure, we can do that. And we call, actually, we called her down to the emergency room first, and we, we set up a, an artificial resuscitation, which I, I played the part of who we later realized would be E.T., <laughs> and uh, let another doctor pound on my chest and, and show them how you resuscitate people. And so she liked it. So a bunch of us went down to the set of E.T. and we all got on hazmat suits and wrote all the technical jargon for that scene, the resuscitation scene of uh, E.T. Oh, and I got God. to pound on E.T.'s chest. I'm actually visible in that in that scene in the movie for just a few nanoseconds. I'm, <laughs> I'm the doctor running in with a clipboard when the all the bells go off and then I'm, I'm pounding on his chest for just a moment. But while I was there, and that was great fun, uh, while I was there, I, I had uh, the chutzpah to, to go up to Spielberg and give him my first science fiction novel, which was World Enough in Time, which had just recently been published, and asked if he'd like to make that into a movie. And he was a little bit busy at the moment, but he passed it on to Frank Marshall, uh, who was the other producer on E.T. At the, at the time. Kathleen Kennedy was one of the producers, and Frank Marshall, uh, her husband, was the other. So Frank read it and liked it well enough to assign me the novelization of Poltergeist, which was at that point in post-production because uh, they'd had some some issues with the first uh, attempt at a novelization for that. But they were so far behind the gun, they told me I, I could do the novelization of Poltergeist, but I had to do it in a month. What? So I got all my, my fr- all my friends in the ER to uh, take over all my shifts for that month, and I, I sat in Spielberg's office at uh, at MGM and just uh, stayed stayed there and wrote, uh, you know, from nine every morning until nine every night, basically, until I turned out Poltergeist. Oh, my that, God. That I was is writing amazing. in longhand in those days, so there was actually me and a, a transcribing secretary, and I would write out pages and give them to her, and she would type them out on her IBM Selectric. 
And uh, so, so that turned out great. I turned it in in a month, and, and they were really happy with it. Spielberg said it was the, the best novelization of any of his movies he'd ever read. I thought that was terrific. Um, uh-huh. And so on that basis, they, they started assigning, assigning me other novelizations. I, th- I think, I, think the ne- I guess Jedi was the next one. Uh, George Lucas was at that point needing a novelizer for Return of the Jedi, and, uh, and so I got a great recommendation from Steven Spielberg and also from Frank Marshall, who has uh, uh, worked with, with George a lot, worked with George on producing the Indiana Jones uh, movies. So, and then in addition, uh, my editor uh, for my original science fiction novels, Judy Lynn Del Rey, who was the editor-in-chief at Del Rey Publishing, which was the imprint of Ballantyne, uh, founded by her and her husband, Lester Del Rey, who is a seminal science fiction writer, of course. Um, Judy Lynn had published my my science fiction novel that I'd given Spielberg, and so she seconded. And she was also the uh, the editor and publisher for the Star Wars novels, so she gave me a, a good recommendation as well. And so I got the, the the nod to do a Return of the Jedi, the novelization, and that was very successful. So that went on to a series of uh, I, I did uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and The Goonies, and, uh, and actually Poltergeist too, eventually. You're working on Return of the Jedi, and there is, uh-huh. you know, understandably, there was a lot of sensitivity to wanting to keep everything, you know, top secret, you know, the revelations and, yeah. and those sorts of things. What was different about, like, was there a difference in the way you approached that novelization versus the way you had to approach Poltergeist or Temple of Doom or anything like that? Like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean first of all, there were, you know, massive uh, non-disclosure agreements i had to sign sign away the 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 life of my firstborn child if i ever leaked anything out um and, and i had to also adhere very strictly to the to the story that george lucas was telling as opposed to poltergeist uh, steven spielberg was very free and easy with poltergeist and said i was at liberty to pretty much as long as i included stuff the stuff that was in the script i could include whatever else i wanted so i i created a whole additional Substory and, and subplot in Poltergeist that wasn't in the movie at all. That was that was actually based on my research in ESP that I had been doing in medical school. Oh wow! Um, and so that was kind of interesting. And he gave me free reign with that, and and uh, so I did that. In in Jedi, on the other hand, uh, um, I was pretty strictly limited to to that story. And in fact, I at one point I I was feeling like. Princess Leia was getting kind of short shrift. And so I invented a whole, I wrote a whole chapter of her backstory of her life on Alderaan and how she got, how she grew up, how she got involved in the rebellion. Uh, and, and uh, George just cut it <laughs> whole cloth. Cause it was, you know, it clearly did not uh, mesh in with, with the very elaborate backstory that he'd already created. So it was, you know, he was quite right to do that. I think. So then when you got on to Temple of Doom and it was uh, Lucas and Spielberg together, which one did they did, did, did Spielberg give you free reign or did Lucas say, no, this is it? Yeah. Yeah. No, for Spielberg, Spielberg was kind of the creative guy on that. And he gave me free reign. And in fact, I, I wrote a, a whole chapter, uh, additional chapter in uh, in that and in Indiana does the Temple of Doom that wasn't in the script at all. That was that was a whole chapter just about short round. Um, and his life before he ran into Indiana Jones. And in fact, I think I titled that chapter A Boy's Life, which was actually the original title of E.T., and it was the working title on set. Um, 
and I think I think subtextually had to do with Spielberg feeling like uh, this was about. Uh, E.T. was about his life. It was about a boy's life, but it was really about kind of his magical thinking life when he was a boy. So as an homage to that, I, I, I titled my chapter about short rounds, A Boy's Life. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I just thought of a, a, another interesting tidbit about the Jedi novelization, um, which was about the secrecy aspect of it, was, which was that when, when I wrote it, the script I got had uh, showed... Um, at the end, the final battle scene, Luke killing the Emperor. And that's how I wrote the novel. And then when I saw the movie come out, Luke didn't kill the Emperor, Vader killed the Emperor. So I ran and got my book that I had written and opened it up to that section and looked at it. And sure enough, in, in my book now, Vader killed the Emperor. And they hadn't tampered in any way with my with my 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 prose. They had left it verbatim as I had written it, except they just exchange the word uh, Luke for the word Vader. So later when I, I talked to George about it and I asked him if that had been a last minute decision or if he had simply given everybody different endings to the script so that if something did get leaked, no one would know what the actual ending would be. And he just smiled and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds like such a Lucas thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it does. I know, uh, I know. The other, actually, as I, I was just, you know, I was just reviewing all this stuff for the first time in 30 years for the uh, the Star Wars celebration in Anaheim that I just went to last week. Yeah. Um, and looking at looking at uh, you know the original script that I was working from and my notes, my and my longhand writing of the, of the novel, and I realized uh, I don't think I'd ever realized this before that there were there were lines that I had that I had changed in the script to write in the novel. Um, that then appeared in the movie. Uh, I mean, I turned this novel manuscript in a year, almost a year before the movie came out. So I can only think that they incorporated some of my novel stuff into the movie, which was kind of nice. Oh, wow. Uh, like uh, Luke's, uh, Luke's, uh, yeah, again, these are just things in the last battle scene between Luke and Vader, where Luke says, Vader's dying words actually were, were uh, you were right, Luke, you were right about me. That was something that, that was not in the script that I wrote. In fact, the other thing that was interesting in the, about, about the script was was in the script that whole Vader's death scene um, was was just four lines of scene direction uh, followed by one line of dialogue. And the four lines of scene direction just said, uh, Luke takes off Vader's mask and he's disgusted and repulsed by what he sees. And Vader shouts, it's too late, and then he dies. And I have scrawled in the margins there that the scene really deserved to be much longer and and more poignant and a reconciliation between father and son. Um, and so I kind of dragged it out to a four page scene in the novel and, uh, and concluded it with, instead of the line, the original line is too late with the line about uh, you were right about me referring to a part of the scene I had written was where Luke is telling Vader all the moments of their past over the past three movies where Vader could have killed him or could have killed Leia, but didn't. And that allowed Luke to see that there was good in Vader. And now in his moment of death, Vader sees that Luke is right. Uh, And, and if I, if I can just interject, uh, I have read your novelization of return of the Jedi, uh, well more than one time. And one of the scenes (laughs) that myself and other, other star Wars fans that I know personally have, uh, frequently talked about is the way you wrote the Vader death scene is truly, oh, it, it really is. It's beautiful. It, it's, it's a fantastic thing. And if anybody listening to this hasn't that. read it, they, they need to. 
Yeah, I really spent a lot of time on it. And it's interesting, it's reflected in my notes, too. You can see all these notes I wrote in the margins of the script about, you know, sense memories they need to have and smells and sounds and 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 shame and guilt, but also reconciliation. So it was, it was something I spent some time on. So I appreciate that. I was thinking Mark Hamill did a ter- – I just actually watched it again uh, a few nights ago. I think Mark Hamill did a terrific acting job in that scene. Yeah, he did. Oh, yeah, for sure. So so moving on, um, back to television. You, yep. you, like you were describing, um, you know, television, you know, one job sort of leads to the next, and you sort of just kind of build a career off of that. What mm-hmm. what led you to uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and, and the Masterpiece Society? Uh, well, I'd always loved Star Trek, and, and in particular The Next Generation. Um, and again, Masterpiece Society, you know, had to deal with, with genetic engineering, and, and it was a theme that, uh, you're right, I, I seem to keep revisiting over and over in various various ways. And now that I say that, that's interesting. I was once in a, in a writer's room where, where one of the writers said, you know, every writer um, has one sentence that, if they could stop to think about it, characterize a kind of subtext or a theme for all the writing they've done, whatever the genre is. And we all laughed at first, and then and then everyone in the room found a sentence that really seemed to fit that. And my sentence was uh, the masks the masks we wear. Um, it's not even a sentence; it's a phrase. But it, but it, it feels to me like, in a way, there's something about genetic engineering uh, that has to do with with who we are essentially, what our, what our essential nature is, uh, and yet how we cover that up with masks in various ways. Um, so, so you know, the Masterpiece Society, which actually was was uh, somewhat different in its final uh, form as it evolved, uh, but was was pitched as as uh, as an idea in which you could genetically engineer uh, a civilization or a, or a species uh, to have certain good traits that that they wanted, but somehow that that it was genetically linked to something that they didn't necessarily want. Yeah, it's it's one of those episodes, uh, you know, when I first started watching Star Trek and I, you know, kind of discovered it and then just watched it, you know, every every night at six o'clock on WPWR Power 50. And, you know, as I, I was sort of like discovering this this show and everything, my, my dad, who was not at all a fan of movies or, or Star Trek. Science fiction or anything, he was kind of seeing it too, mm-hmm. and but sort of dismissing it. And I, I remember this vividly, like the first time that he kind of acknowledged that like Star Trek was maybe a thing that was worth watching was the Masterpiece Society. You know, he wow. I remember him talking about it and saying like, "Look at the you know sort of ethical uh, dilemma which is presented here. You know, that's re- some really interesting stuff. This show actually does have a lot going on in it." It was that that specific episode. Right. So, thanks for how interesting. Turning my dad well, you know, the, be, the, the best science fic, the best science fiction, um, and and the the uh, really the mission of all the Star Trek franchises um, is to examine ethical and cultural and social uh, issues of our of our time, of our civilization, of our people, um, but within the context of this you know, kind of phantasmagorical or fantastic or fantasy or a, a, a way that allows us to look at these things without having to, you know, be politically dogmatic or or to turn some people off because they don't want to think about these things. You can do it within a framework of a science fiction world. Um, 
And so that's that's always what we try to do in in Star Trek, and that's uh, again always what the best science fiction is about. It's about examining what what are the what what is it about human nature that we can reflect on and that will help us think about our world today. Yeah, and you can definitely see that in in your episodes of Voyager as well. Now, yeah. I, you know, we we've talked to a number of Star Trek writers on this show, um, but as as far as I can tell, all of them have been you know, sort of like freelance uh, people or, or you know, I don't think we've ever talked to anyone who was actually on staff, but you, you were on staff huh. of, of Voyager. Um, right. How did that come about first? I mean, it was the, the very last season and everything. How, how did, did you, um, you know, sort of get involved with that, with that show? Uh, Brandon Braga had been uh, uh, intimately involved with that, but he had to break away the last season because he needed to spend that year developing Enterprise, which was going to, would, would start uh, a year later. Um, so they had an opening, they had a high level opening. And I had, I had done some, I had been in Melrose Place prior to that, where I was a co-executive producer. So, so I had the experience of producing a, a primetime television show. And actually, interestingly, uh, the thing that attracted their attention to me most initially was a spec episode that I had written for The Sopranos, of all things, oh, wow. um, which had gotten me a, a lot of attention and a lot of meetings, um, partly because uh, it it's um, nailed the kind of sense and sensibility of The Sopranos so well. And in particular, the the language and the dialogue and the voice. And what first attracted me, uh, uh, the, the Star Trek people, to to me, was that um, uh, writers who come on Star Trek have a hard time with the Star Trek voice. Um, and they thought that I had nailed the Sopranos voice so well that I could certainly nail the Star Trek voices in it as well as that too. So. So that's what got me my first meeting at Star Trek, and then of course all all my science background and medical background was a, was a huge help as well. But the Star Trek voice is a very particular kind of voice. It's it's there there are not many contractions. Very few people in Star Trek ever use contractions. It's it's a little bit formal, uh, and it's, it takes a little getting used to. Yeah, you hear people uh, talk about that in reference to uh, acting as well, you know, and how some people have trouble performing the the Star Trek voice and yeah. how it's it's very sort of like Shakespearean right. in a lot of ways and, and and that kind of thing exactly it's very formal kind of a, a special kind of formalized approach yeah that's interesting and uh, you know like looking at at your episodes there there are obviously a lot of uh, sort of medical issues which are dealt with um, but but what what I find to be kind of interesting is that it's all sort of about like the ethics of medicine you know it doesn't get into like the nitty-gritty mm -hmm. stuff really so much it's more about you right. know sort of like these philosophical issues yeah exactly and and the best Star Treks are although there's obviously kind of science and, and certainly faux science as well uh, really the the kernels the interesting kernels are about the ethics of the situation so my first episode I think was critical care uh, and that was really a reflection on on our healthcare system in America today. It was and, and the uh, the notion was this planet that the doctor gets uh, uh, spirited away to to be used as a doctor has a system whereby every individual is given a, a, a treatment coefficient where how how important they are to, to society will determine the, how good their medical care is. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's certainly in a way true in our society in terms of, you know, if you're rich, you have access to all kinds of incredible medical care. And if you're not, you don't. Uh, and this was before Obamacare, but it was speaking to the same kinds of issues that the whole medical uh, care discussion has taken on in, in recent years. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, you, you see that reflected in um, the television of today as well. I mean, Breaking Bad is kind of all about that, really, when you think mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, lineage as well. You know, that's kind of an episode where, I mean, it, it deals with the genetic stuff like um, like uh, Masterpiece Society does. But it's also really sort of about, mm-hmm. um, you know, growing up different, growing up like in a culture which isn't your own and, and interracial, you know, uh, families and stuff like that. Absolutely. And I really drew, drew um, from very personal issues on that. I mean, I was, I was a, a Jewish kid growing up in an all non-Jewish area and had a lot of problems growing up of, of uh, alienation and isolation and getting bullied. And so I, I really uh, drew on that, the emotions of that growing up and, and uh, gave those right to Balana, who is uh, basically expressing the same kinds of things growing up a Klingon in, in, a, in a human society. The other thing which is interesting about that episode and kind of looking at it in its place in the season is, you know, that's the episode where, you know, we find out that Balana is pregnant, which obviously right. was done because uh, Roxanne Dawson was pregnant, right? But um, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but it's interesting in that it's it's just sort of like, it felt like to me anyway, that there was sort of like a decision which was made amongst the staff where it's like, well, okay, she's pregnant, we need to make her pregnant, here's the story where we're going to introduce it. But it's really like a self-contained story, like it's not really, you know pushing the the plot of her being pregnant forward it's it's like a, a self-contained thing sure it, it, it's not just about her you know her personal alienation issues it's 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 about again issues of 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 genetic manipulation and and even though we can do things to make the kinds of people that we want to make should we do those things you know it's a situation where she wants to to manipulate uh, this fetus of hers so that it's not going to go through the same kinds of horrific childhood that she went through. But, but in manipulating those things in, in one way, it has detrimental effects in another way. And, and so it's, it's always it's the same idea of dealing with, well, we can do these things, but there are always unintended consequences. And we have to be very careful before we go down that road. Yeah. I, I guess I have a, a sort of a general question for you, um, because, like, like I said, we mm-hmm. haven't really talked to anyone who's, you know, written uh, on staff for Star Trek before. But, like, how how is that different from, you know, coming in and, and doing something freelance? I, I imagine that it's a much more collaborative effort. Um, is, is Do you find that to be a challenge, or are there benefits to it as well? Oh, it was, it was it's great fun. It, it's like... You know, being a writer is usually a very solitary kind of life. Um, and this is the, being in a writer's room on a television show is, is the one kind of wonderfully social aspect where you get to sit, you know, in a room for hours and hours with other writers and talk about writerly things. It's just so much fun. And it's, it's, uh, 
you know, and you end up talking about the politics of the day or, or each other's personal lives and, and jokes and all that comes into play into the formation of, of some new story. You know, something will click and someone will say, God, you know, that would be a great story if we did this about that. And it's a very collaborative kind of thing. And there's, you know, there's a hierarchy so that, so that, uh, um, the higher you are on the chain, the more episodes you get to write in a season. But at some point, everybody comes to be up for the next writing job. And so, so they will, whoever is getting to be up will start to bring in their own story ideas. So when it's their turn, they say, well, well you know, I kind of like to do a story about this. And someone else will say, oh, that's a great idea. But I was thinking about this. You know, you could combine these two things. Maybe that would make a, would turn the story in a different way. And then people would all chime in and, and you'd spend, you know, a half a day or a day just kind of brainstorming and batting things around until you got the universe of the story that you wanted to do. And then the whole room would, would what's called breaking the story. And there'd be, you know, a whiteboard at the front of the room and someone's job would be to stand there with a, with a magic marker. Um, and you'd break it scene by scene. You'd say, okay, well, if this story is about this, it should start here. So this should be kind of what the first scene is. And we know how it want, we want to end it. We want it to end it with this idea. So the last scene should be down here. And we know how many acts there are. We know each act needs to end with kind of a, a teaser or kind of a, a cliffhanger. So then you go through and you start basically say, well, we know that these half dozen scenes need to be in it. There needs to be a scene where, you know, Bolana goes to the doctor and finds out she's pregnant. We need there to be a scene where Bolana finds out it's going to be a Klingon looking child. We need there to be an argument scene between Bolana and Tom about it's okay or it's not okay for her child. So, so, you know, you come up with six or eight scenes, you know, are going to be there and you kind of order them chronologically and you say, okay, well, if this scene is in act one, then this scene needs to be in act two. And then you start to get that. Then you start to see fill in scenes. Well, if you have this scene here, you need before that, you need a scene between these two people about this. And gradually the scenes all fill in until there's a whole board full of the scene by scene story. And then whoever's idea it was or whoever is up for writing the next script takes that scene by scene beat sheet, it's called, and goes off and, uh, and writes the script, writes a draft of the script. And then the producers read the draft and give notes on it. And then that writer does a second draft based on the notes. And then after that draft is done, typically one of the producers will then take it and do a final polish on it. And that's that, how that works. That's so cool. I mean, I, yeah. I would, I would love to just like be a fly on the wall of that room, you know, I mean, yeah. that just sounds like the coolest thing ever. Um, yeah. And, and th- this room I, I imagine would have been rather interesting in that I'm assuming from, from the very beginning, you guys knew that this was the end, you know, you had 26 hours, you know, to yeah. go and, I, I, was there a plan um, from the beginning of the season to – did you guys know where it was going to end or was that still up for debate? Well, we, we knew that we, – we, we knew they had to get back home um, and that was, that was about it. Other than that, there were a few kind of interpersonal stories we knew needed to get resolved um, and after that, it was kind of all up for grabs. There was – because it was the last season, I think there was more pressure – uh, on everyone, and that sometimes led to, I don't know, kind of a, a tension in the room that you wouldn't ordinarily have seen because everyone felt like it was incumbent on them to come up with, you know, really kind of final finalized stories. 
but no, it's it's pretty much worked out uh, in a week by week way. That's, that's, that's different cool. from example uh, from when I was on Mello's Place, which was uh, very much a serialized show, um, and and in the in the room it was kind of the same story by story, but every six weeks we would come up with a six week arc. Mm-hmm. Um, where we'd say, okay, these couples are all in these relationships now. Where do we want them to be six weeks from now? And then come up with kind of broad strokes idea of how they got from here to where they were going to get six weeks from now and how those how those developments kind of played out show by show for the next six shows. And I imagine that, that your work on All My Children was sort of like that to like – that that times a hundred or something like that, right? I mean, I can't I can't imagine actually, no, what because <laughs> um, uh, day, daytime soaps are actually run differently from from nighttime uh, drama, and safe, soaps have uh, two different uh, writers. One one is the story breaking writers, which kind of is done the same way as I just described to you, and they break all the stories. Then when they're done breaking the stories, they don't write the actual scripts. Those stories are then sent to the screenwriters. And on the, all my children, I was one of the screenwriters. I wasn't involved in breaking the mm-hmm. stories. So I would just get uh, a story beat sheet all broken out, and I wouldn't have to think about what happened to who. I would just write the script. So, so it was a much much easier. Really making up the story is, is by far the hardest part. So in, in that sense, though, then like all my children is almost like the novelizations where somebody else gave it <laughs> to you, and you were like, yeah, okay, let's do this with it. To a, to a certain extent, yeah. Although with the novelization, um, I really had to dig deeper and 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 uh, really go into much more uh, character developments and backstory and internal monologue than in the scripts for All My Children, which were fairly straightforward kinds of, you know, kind of play-by-play of whatever the Beachy said to do. Although I, I imagine that uh, it does take a, a, a different set of skills in that you you're sort of like writing for an audience that, you know, I've, I've heard people talk about kind of like the structure on like a weekly basis and how like some episodes are like loaded with content and then others are kind of like rehashing what had come before because you don't know that everyone's watching, right? Is that, is that tricky to, to deal with? It, it is. And you had to sort of know what came before and what was coming after and where you were in the whole sequence of things to know how, how much to hit on on particular plot points, particularly heavy, or how much you could actually, in fact, play around and, and dally around a little bit with just uh, the banter between characters. Interesting. So, so now you're you're preparing to uh, move back to feature films, I guess, right? Uh, with with a new project called right. Wrong Side Bob. What's that about? Um, well. First of all, I mean, just mention I produced my first uh, small independent feature film called The Bet about two years ago, um, and that was with an organization that I helped form called the Community Film Studio Santa Barbara, and it's it, it's an organization. It was a nonprofit organization based on the idea of community theater, except instead of putting on local stage plays, we made movies. So our first kind of proof of concept movie was this uh, teen romantic comedy coming of age film called The Bet. Uh, and it was kind of proof of concept to me personally that I that I could produce a feature film. So that came out really well. It won uh, Best Feature Award at the L.A. Film, film Festival and it was official entry at a number of film festivals. But that, that gave me the confidence to, to move forward and actually make my own movie, which I'm doing now. And it is called Wrong Side Bob. 
and it's based loosely based on uh, on a CD I released a couple of years ago called Man Walks Into a Bar. Uh, I I do my own uh, singing songwriting and I produce this Americana album which is you know, folk music, country, some blues, and the it was a concept album uh, in which every song was about one of the people in this bar on a given night. And then there was kind of a meta story, how their their stories intermingled, and that all came to a very dramatic conclusion at the end of the album. So I thought that would be a good a good jumping off place uh, to write a, a script. So I did that, uh, and it's about you know a bar with uh, the the basic basic premise is a, a drifter with amnesia stumbles into this little roadside bar, and he he gets connected to a an old guy, a regular at the bar who. Uh, the drifter with amnesia is desperately trying to remember his past. And the old guy at the bar did something terrible in his past that he's desperately trying to forget. So they help each other out and, uh, and come to the realization that it doesn't matter what you did or who you were, it's, it's who you are that matters. And along the way, they get all entangled with a, a kind of offbeat crime plot and all the various quirky characters in the bar. Oh, that sounds really cool. Are, are you, yeah, that um, sounds really interesting. Yeah, are are you um, planning on directing it yourself as well, or I will. Yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm producing it. I'll be co-directing with a, with a friend. We'll both be doing that together. And uh, and right now we're just in the in the development process. I'm I'm getting actors. I'm getting uh, a, a director of photography, things like that. And oh. I hope to shoot it uh, early next year, January or February. Oh, that's that's fantastic! I can't wait to see it. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, yeah, can't wait to show it to you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you very much for for uh, taking the time uh, to talk to us and everything. Um, wh- where can people find you uh, on the internet? Where can they find out uh, some more information about Wrong Side Bob and, and everything else? Sure. Well, let's see. My my website is uh, is thatjamescon dot com, but you can also get me on Facebook uh, at Wrong Side Bob on Facebook. And you can see me on Twitter. Uh, my, my handle is at that James Khan. Excellent. Well, thank you again very much for for talking to us. It's been very interesting and insightful, and, and everything. Yeah. And we, we'd love to have you back anytime. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's really fun talking to you guys. Well, that was very fun and interesting talking to to James about his entire career. Very much so. I, I just. Edifying and entertaining. Uh, really pleasant fellow and uh, really just wonderful to talk to. Learned a lot. You know, it, it was it was great talking to him, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to his, his new movie. I can't wait to see. Yeah, that wow. sounds really interesting. I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, it. You know, it's a good concept. And the idea that, that the whole production is born out of the same tradition of community theater is, that's pretty admirable. That's pretty cool. And also an adaptation of of his his album. I mean, yeah. okay, doctor, writer, uh, <laughs> musician, singer. I, I don't. I mean, come on. Every I so mean, every so often, you you read about somebody or you meet somebody where you're like, oh, if I just applied myself a little harder, he's no, nah, he's. You know, I, I listen <laughs> to him recount things, do. and it, yeah, I was like, um, I'm never gonna get there. So cool. <laughs> I'm glad somebody has that drive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, it was it was it was really fun talking to him. Very much. But that's not all we're talking about here on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. 
Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Set this movie at the end of the five-year mission. Skip ahead five years, you know, kind of like Dark Knight or whatever, and then Mm -hmm. say, okay, we've had all these adventures, blah, 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 and now we're at the end. We're about to go home, you know, and it's been a a fun time was had by all. Earl Grey. Again, you know, because it's... January. My ship was shot beyond the bounds of normal interstellar <laughs> travel <laughs> to the center of the galaxy, but we were back in time for tea. The orb. They're they're not even right. thinking about it at this point. Okay, how yeah, do we well, exactly. start the resistance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we do all this? Yeah. Because they have become comfortable with where they are and thinking yeah. that they're doing all they can, and yet right. we know as the audience that they're not. To the journey. I want you to say right now in front of our our friends, okay, and in front of me and the Lord Almighty, what is your favorite season? Okay, this isn't the favorite season. I want you to tell me what your favorite season is. (laughs) Daniel, Daniel and Darren, promise we won't ever be like this. The Ready Room. So what's the deal? You know, does Tom have a dad we don't know about? Apparently. Because who <laughs> was this was guy that he was remembering yeah, as his know, dad? Was that Nick Lacarno's dad? <laughs> that was Nick Lacarno's dad, yes. Commentary, Trek stars. But I mean, oh, here's yeah. the question, John. If, if you're living Fight Club, then, you know, we have to ask, if you could fight anyone, who would you fight? William Shatner. All right. Literary Treks. The main storyline here is the battle for the Vulcan soul. They're one of the most logical races, and yet they have an intensely spiritual aspect to them. Axonar, the official podcast. You were there. Mm. How long did we wait for them to try and reach that phone? Oh, man, it was, it, was, it was at least as long as the Enterprise penetrating V'ger's outer <laughs> shield to getting into the actual machine core. The 602 Club. So, as far as the realism question is concerned... Um, whether or not it's the right thing to do. It's the Marvel way to do it. I mean, I think that's the that's the defining difference between Marvel and DC. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows podcast directory for Xbox and Zune, or you can stream them from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash podcasts to get all the links. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive and Federation... Audible has something for everyone. They've even got a couple Star Trek Voyager books, like Pathways, which was written by Star Trek Voyager's creator, Jerry Taylor, and narrated by Robert Picardo. So, John, what what does uh, Audible have to say about Pathways? Audible says, Here is the previously untold story of Captain Janeway's crew. They began as individuals following very different pathways, but together, under the leadership of one remarkable woman, They have become one of the finest teams in the known universe, the crew of the Voyager. Yeah, see, so you can read this before you do your Season 7 rewatch, so you know where they're coming from before you see where they're going. Which, spoilers, is home. 
Yeah. Uh, and as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, including Pathways, uh, along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and Trek FM. And lastly, uh, there's one way that you can directly help us keep Commentary, Trek Stars, coming to you each week, and that's by becoming a patron of the network on patreon.com. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. And you can sign up today and become a donor. Um, it's, it's kind of like Kickstarter, but on a monthly basis. And there's different levels which you can donate. And uh, there's various rewards at those levels. And uh, we'd very much appreciate any support that, that uh, you could give us. Uh, because um, running this network is not cheap, apparently. So uh, head on over to patreon.com slash trekfm if you can, and uh, uh, throw us a few bucks, and, and we'd, we'd greatly appreciate that. So, John, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, you can find me crawling around Twitter at Kessel Junkie. Uh, and other than that, you can find me on a weekly show called Words with Nerds that I uh, co-host with my buddy Craig, where we talk about all of the uh, breaking hot topics of the nerd universe. So I bet this week you're going to be talking about um, the Joker. Uh, we, uh, I, I campaign to talk about nothing but Star Wars all the time, but every so often something will sneak in about you know Batman or the Joker, and I like how the Joker looks. That's That's just me. It looks different. It is different. They needed to do something different and crazy. I'm not sure I would have gone in that direction, but whatever. I mean, you can't top what Heath Ledger did. Right. So you got to do something different. You can, e- you can either try to imitate it, uh, which will be awful, or you mm-hmm. can just try to go for broke and do something different. And uh, I will give credit. I forget who the Twitter user was that uh, quote-unquote color-corrected uh, the image of the Joker and realize it looks just like Gary Busey, oh, which excellent. truly, when you think about it, is terrifying. I mean, Gary Busey is the best. Everyone should look like Gary Busey. <laughs> well, I wouldn't screw with him. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, you can find me right here on the network doing Standard Orbit with Drew, where we talk about the original series. And you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com, where I do commentary track stars off topic, where we talk about the Joker and Star Wars and all that other stuff, um, along with uh, Brandon and Max. And you can also find uh, me on uh, Twitter at Mumbles3K, or you can contact all of us on uh, Twitter at ComTrackStars or email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Or you can also um, leave us a review on iTunes, because why not? Right? It would be fantastically, wonderfully awesome if you did that. Yeah, you could also leave us a voicemail if you go to uh, the show page on Trek.fm. And, uh, you know, hey, we'll play it on the air. So, so yeah. 
So thanks again to James Kahn for joining us today and telling us all about uh, what it was like writing for Star Trek and uh, like all the rest of television and books and movie um, novelizations and everything else because that guy really has done it all, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, it is. (laughs) And uh, yeah, um, we will be back next week to begin our series on Harv Bennett. (laughs) 